The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. As you heard in the video announcements, our missions garage sale is this weekend, and uh, that garage sale generates a lot of money. Most of it goes to local missions this year. We need a lot of help for that. It takes uh, dozens of us to pull that off. We need folks to serve uh, picking things up, men. We especially need dudes uh, to come on Wednesday and Thursday to help uh, pick stuff up at the homes of folks. So there's a sign-up table out there. There's information in the bulletin. Uh, we'd love to have you come and be a part of that. If you can't uh, come during the day, there are opportunities at night to serve and then all day Saturday. So great opportunities out there to do that. Crusaders looked pretty good yesterday. What about those Aggies as well? My phone, my phone blew up because my kids were there at the game, and it's like, man, I'm just going to shut that sucker off. I'm done with this. So when your team doesn't play, it's a hard day. Uh, one is what we're looking at. If you open your Bibles or your apps to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 15. Galatians chapter 3. Actually, I'm going to read at the end of the chapter, and then we're going to back up to verse 15. Galatians chapter 3. I'd like you to go all the way down to verse 26. Galatians 3, 26. I'll give you the conclusion, then we'll come back and support it from the text. Galatians 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Three times he says, you are all, all, all one in Christ. Father, as we look at the word, would you teach us this morning? Would you attune our hearts to the truth that's here and then give us hearts that are willing to obey? So Father, take the word, use it to your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. In our family, I do the grocery shop, and then some of you say, of course you do, take a look at me. Uh, I do the grocery shop, and Bev does the cooking, and uh, it's a marriage made in heaven. Uh, I love grocery stores because they contain two of my favorite things, people and food, people and food, so it's a, it's a great deal. One of the things I've noticed in going to the grocery store over the years, though, is I look around and I see this label on a lot of products. Have you noticed that? If you've done anything with advertising, it seems to me that label is everywhere. In fact, if you look on TV, you'll also see it there. Every product comes out new and improved. My first thought saw was everything old and rotten before that. I mean, as I look at that label, I'm thinking, so if everything is new and improved, it had to be old and rotten before. But I began, I got interested in that label this week because Paul's dealing with that issue. He's dealing with the issue of new and improved. So I googled up uh, new and improved labels, and I found out this goes back a long time in advertising. I mean, it goes way back, actually. In fact, uh, one of the oldest ones was a Marlboro commercial, new, improved Marlboro filter with the Marlboro Cowboy. I guess it's new and improved because it kills you quicker or something. I'm not sure what. Uh, And then I ran across this one. I found five delicious new ways to serve chopped meat, Heinz ketchup. First of all, my first question is, what in the world is chopped meat and why would you serve it anyway? And how do you make it new with ketchup? But anyway, that's a whole nother deal. And then I saw this one, uh, new and improved loves diapers. And I'm thinking, how do you improve on a diaper? How do you make it new and how do you improve it? And then I read a story about a guy who uh, he and his wife had their first baby and uh, it was the first time the wife was going to go run errands for a few hours and he was back with his baby boy for the first time. 
And uh, he was just bonding with his son, and then the boy began to cry inconsolably, and he, he tried everything. He tried feeding him, burping him, walked him around the house, and the baby's still screaming uh, at the top of his lungs. So he walked next to her where a pediatric nurse lived, and uh, she took a look at his eyes, took a look at his ears, listened to his heart, and then she finally smelled something, and she said, I found the problem. He said, what's the problem? He said, have you changed this baby? He said, no. On the diaper thing, it said good for eight to 10 pounds. (laughs) Some of you get that this afternoon and you'll be laughing then. Till then, trust me, it's new and improved. I like this little meme. It says, how can it be improved if it's new? Think about that for a second. How can it be improved if it's new? Well, that's the struggle that Paul is facing. There are false teachers in the region of Galatia, among the churches of Galatia, saying, hey, we've got something that's new and improved. We need to follow it. You see, the promise was given to Abraham 430 years later. The law was given to Moses. So obviously the law trumps the promise given to Abraham. And so therefore, to truly know Christ, you have to come by faith plus keeping the law, faith plus doing good works. And that's the battle that Paul is confronted with. That's the battle that Paul is fighting when we read the book of Galatians. Promises given by God to Abraham. And then if you look at chapter three, if you drop down to verse 17, it says, what I'm saying is a law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant ratified by God. And so they're saying, hey, Moses, Moses, Moses got the law after Abraham was given his promise. Therefore, the law must trump the promise. And that's what he's dealing with. And you're saying, Gary, that's a lot of talk about law and promise. I want you to say two words with me. I want you to say the word promise with me. Promise. The word promise occurs eight times in this section. From, 815, from chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to verse 29, the word promise occurs eight times. The other word is law. Would you say the word law with me? Law. So promise law, let's say those two words, promise law. That's what we're going to look at today. Contrast between the two, comparison between the two. And we're going to see how that applies to us and how the gospel and the implication of the gospel are lived out by us when we understand these two words correctly. So these false teachers are saying you have to return to the law. You have to believe in Christ, but you also have to add some things to it. The things we're adding were things like keeping the Sabbath and dietary restrictions and rules and and circumcision for sure. And Paul's argument is no, the just shall come and live by faith alone. So he proceeds to show them, he proceeds to show them the superiority of the promise over the law. Really, I wish I had worded that differently. The outline was already printed when I finished my studying and stuff, but Really, what Paul is showing is how the law did not displace the promise. How the law did not displace the promise. So let me tell you what we mean. We'll get right out of the text and we'll talk about the significance of it. When we talk about the promise, what are we talking about? When we talk about the promise eight times in here, it's a promise given to Abraham. So what was the promise given to Abraham? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis, that's where the promise was given. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, I will make you a great nation. He's talking to God, talking to Abraham into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. Up till now, it's just a promise though. Genesis 12 is just a promise given by God to Abraham. The promise from God to Abraham had three aspects. We're going to look at those in a second. There was part of this, part of this promise had to do with the land. That's why it's called the promised land. God promised a specific land to the nation of Israel. 
So it had to do with land. It had to do with seed. And we're going to see that in a second. I'm going to show you another verse. And then it had to do with blessing. And that's the aspect we're looking at here. So I'm going to bless you and bless those who bless you. To God told that to Abraham, referring to the generations to come, which would be the nation of Israel. But specifically, he talks about a seed that will come in Genesis chapter 22. God tells to Abraham, indeed, I will greatly bless you. He reiterates the promise. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and sand, which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so the promise from God to Abraham is, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a seed, and I'm going to give you a blessing. Three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Paul says in Galatians 3.15, he talks about a covenant. So this is a promise so far. And he says, God made a covenant with Abraham. Look at verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets aside or adds to it. So basically saying man makes a covenant. In our day and age, in legal terminies, it's called an irrevocable trust. So this trust is made. If you're very wealthy and you want to pass your wealth to succeeding generations, you put it in a trust. It's an irrevocable trust. It can't be changed once you've given it, once you place it in the trust. And so he's saying God has made this covenant. Now, when did the covenant come to be? This is a promise so far. When did it become a covenant? Well, if you were to look into Genesis 15, that's when the covenant happened. So God makes a promise. It's in Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to make you a nation. Then in Genesis 15, he ratifies the covenant to use the terminology of the scriptures. So what did God do? He caused a deep sleep to come upon Abraham. Abraham has a dream. In that dream, in that vision, God splits animals in half. And uh, typically what would happen is if we were to make a covenant, uh, the most binding covenant would be a blood covenant. A blood covenant. That's the most binding covenant in the whole world. So if Rory and I were going to make a covenant, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to make the most binding possible covenant. You're going to give me some land or you're you're going to sell me some land and we're going to make this covenant. Uh, We're going to kill animals. We're going to walk between those animals. And what we're saying is, as has happened to those animals, may it happen to us if we violate that covenant. You've got it? So you know what I do on weddings? Almost every church you're in and almost every wedding venue has a center aisle. And so one of the things that I do in the giving away, I've got this young couple up here, you've got the dad in the middle, you've got the guy over here, you've got the gal over here, this gorilla dressed in a penguin suit is trying to steal someone's daughter over here. And, uh, and so they come down and we do the typical giving away. But before we get to uh, who is it that gives this woman in marriage, and the guy says, he stumbles on his words every time, it's supposed to say her mother and I, and he chokes up and blah, blah, blah. But before that, here's what I do. I say, you know, following the service, guys, you're going to walk down that center aisle. And it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the most binding covenant that could be made in the scriptures, a blood covenant. And what, in the Old Testament, two animals would be split and two people would walk down that together. And they're saying, as has happened to those animals, may it happen to us if we violate this covenant. And so today you're making a covenant before God. It's a covenant of marriage. And what you're saying is, May the same thing happen to us as happen to those animals if we violate that covenant. Now, I know there are biblical reasons for divorce and remarriage. I accept that and understand that. And I recognize God's grace and God's forgiveness comes into being. But when you stand before God, make a covenant, you covenant to never put asunder what he joins together. And so when you walk down that center aisle, it's a picture of what's taken place in Old Testament times, most binding covenant. 
Well, here's what's unique about the Abrahamic covenant. If Rory and I were to make that covenant, we'd both walk through those animals. When a, when a couple gets married, they walk through those animals symbolically. But if you were to go to Genesis 15, you know what happens? Abraham doesn't walk between those animals. The scriptures specifically say that God goes between the animals. He is like a smoking oven in a fiery torch. It's exactly what it says in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, it says this. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, God made a covenant with Abraham and said to you, the descendants of this, to your descendants, this land will be given, and he lays it out. What God has done there, my friends, he has given Abraham a unilateral, unconditional covenant. If you're taking notes, write those two words down. He has made a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham. What God has said is, Abraham, I am the one making this covenant. I walk through the dead animals, not you. It's unilateral. I will keep my word. It's unconditional, Abraham. It's not based on what you've done. This is a gift of grace that I give to you. So the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of land, seed, and blessing, is a unilateral, unconditional covenant by God to Abraham. Now think about the parallel to our salvation. What did you do to receive salvation? Nothing. What did Abraham do to receive this promise? Nothing. Who binds our salvation? God does. Who bound the covenant with Abraham? God did. And he's saying, just as the promise was given to Abraham, that one day you'll be in the promised land, one day there's a seed, one day there's a blessing. Likewise, looking ahead, the same thing will happen to you. In fact, he says in Galatians chapter 3, it's very interesting, Paul makes a commentary, Galatians 3.16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. And then Paul defines who that seed is. If you write in your Bible, underline the last phrase, that is Christ. So what he's saying is the summation of the promise given to Abraham, which became a ratified covenant by Abraham, it all sums up in Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, look at the next verse. He says, uh, what came 430 years later, the law does not invalidate the covenant that was ratified previously by God. So what Paul is saying is this, He stick with me. We'll get to the the conclusion, the punchline in a minute. He's saying three reasons the law did not displace the Abrahamic covenant. Number one, the promise given to Abraham was a covenant made by God. He walked between the animals, not Abraham. Secondly, the summation of the promise is Christ. The promise given to Abraham points to the seed of Abraham. It's not just the Jewish people, but it's singular. It's Jesus himself. Therefore, the law could not put aside the the promise given to Abraham to us. And thirdly, the promise was not invalidated by the law. It's spelled out in chapter 3, verse 7, says the law does not invalidate the covenant. Excuse me. And so he says, I want you to know, the promise came 430 years later, the law came, but the law does not supersede, the law does not displace the promise given to Abraham. He's saying, Gary, why is that so important? Hold your heart, says, I'm going to get there. I know you're dying for the answer to that question. Why are you spending all this time? Why has Paul spent all this time doing that? Well, two things I want to point out about the law. First of all, the law was given so that man could understand God's holy character and recognize a sinful being and place his faith in God's provision for salvation. That's why the law came. It points out our sin. 
makes us realize that God is holy, we're sinful. I mean, when you break the law, you recognize your sinfulness, don't you? Anybody here ever broken the law? The law of our lands at least once? Anybody here? Raise your hand if you've broken the law at least once. If you haven't broken the law, I want to see your hand. I'm going to hang out with you. I mean, I pointed out last week, you're driving down I-35, you're going 70 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour zone, you crest a hill, there's a policeman on the side of the road, he's got radar out, you feel guilty, you are guilty, you hit your brakes and pray there's somebody going faster than you in the next lane. Because the law has pointed out your sin. That's what the law does. The law points out our sin. It makes us realize we're imperfect. When we realize we're imperfect, then we're in need of a Savior. And we recognize through the law that there's no way we can keep it, so we need a Savior other than ourselves. And so it points us to faith and God's provision for salvation. And it says very specifically, the provision for that salvation is Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. So that's what Paul's saying. But these false teachers are coming in and saying, hey, Christ isn't enough. It's Christ plus something else. And we'll talk about that in a second. Two things to note about the law. First of all, the law was temporary. The law was temporary. If you drop down, if you look at uh, verse 19, why then the law was added because of transgressions. I'll explain that in a second. Having been ordained through the angels by the agency of mediation until, circle that in your Bibles, until the seed should come. Now, who is the seed? What do we say at the end of verse 16? Who's the seed? Jesus is, Christ is, till the seed comes. So the law will be fulfilled when Christ comes. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount would say this, do not not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ fulfilled the law. If Christ had not fulfilled the law, then today you would have come to worship with trailers behind your trucks and cars. You would be carrying bulls. You'd be carrying sheep. You'd be carrying pigeons. You'd be carrying whatever else because we would be offering sacrifices and have a bloody altar up here. But we don't do that because Christ fulfilled the law. He was the perfect sacrifice. When you go to lunch today, you can eat a pork chop and not think twice about it because Christ fulfilled the law, the dietary restriction. I say praise God for that part as well as the sacrificial part. I can go out tonight and eat all the shrimp I want, the diet I'm on, I can't, but figuratively or theoretically I could. I could eat all the shrimp I want and not think about it because uh, under the law, I couldn't eat those shrimp, but now because of Jesus, I can. And I say glory, hallelujah, thank God. You see, the the law taught the nation of Israel. There was a ceremonial aspect, a civil aspect, and a moral aspect to the law. It taught the nation of Israel, your sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior is the one who ultimately sacrificed himself for you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so he said, uh, I've come to fulfill the law. The law was temporary. Secondly, the law required a mediator. The law required a mediator. The promise didn't. God made the promise to Abraham. There was nothing, just him and Abraham. But then it says that uh, in specifically that there was the agency of mediation, verse 19. Look at verse 20. Now, a mediator is not for one party, whereas God is only one. God made, God could strike a deal with Abraham because it was a promise, but the law is made between God and man, and man is part of that. And so mediation had to take place. The law. The law did not displace the promise. Secondly, the law does not contradict the promise. The law does not contradict the promise. The promise given to Abraham is not contradicted by the law given to Moses. The law had its purpose to point out sin. The promise, its purpose was to show God's grace, to show God's grace and to show where the true descendant, the future deliverer, the Messiah would come from. 
The law doesn't give life. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness should indeed be based on the law. The law does not give life. The law points out what is wrong. Life comes through grace. Life comes through the gift. And he's saying that the law only shows you where sin is. I had to have a wisdom tooth pulled about a month ago. I went to the, I was having some pain in my jaw and uh, went to my dentist and he said, you've got uh, some things going on there. We need to yank that wisdom tooth. You know what he did? First of all, he got a mirror out and he looked at that, and he looked at that thing and he got a little probe out and he hit it with that little pointy thing. I'm going, ouch, that hurts. And he looked at it and he did it. And when he pulled that tooth out, he didn't use that mirror to pull it out. See, the mirror pointed out the problem. It couldn't solve the problem. He got a pair of pliers, I think, and a two-by-four and yanked that sucker until it came out. I don't know what he had. I, I closed my eyes. I didn't, my eye, I didn't want to see it. So I'm going to keep this one eye open. Watch all you're going to do right there. So, 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 so he, he didn't take the mirror and do it. The mirror pointed out the sin. Back in May, when we had all the storms and stuff and all the rain, that there was a lightning strike close to us. Uh, some of the lights went out in our house. So I went and got a flashlight and I went and found the circuit breakers and I found a circuit breaker gone off. And I didn't walk around the house saying, hey, babe, we got a flashlight. That's what we're going to use for light now. I, I mean, that's it. No, I took the flashlight and saw where the problem was. The problem was with the circuit breaker. And then I hit the thing and turned it on. That's the most mechanical thing I've done in the last 25 years. It was absolutely, it was amazing. I mean, I'm thinking, geez, I'm a genius now. I can turn a thing over. I mean, it was actually mechanical and it happened and it worked and the lights came on. But I had to use a flashlight and beat on it. I didn't go around the bed and say, hey, babe, we've got light now. The light pointed out the problem and we fixed the problem. The law points out our sin. The law cannot give us righteousness. Only Jesus can do that. So here's where the application comes. In our day and age, a lot of people who grew up in churches, many of you did, it was a church that you thought you had to do good works to be saved. In fact, you you had religion, but you didn't have righteousness. How many of you grew up in a background like that where you thought, I, I've just got to do, do, do that? That's what's, let me see your hands. Raise them high. I want to see that high. Take, take a look around. I mean, a lot of us grew up that way. It had to do with you had to do these good works, and if the good outweighs the bad, we're in. If the bad outweighs the good, we're not. That's the American way. Or, or, or here's how it sounds today. You heard me last week. If you travel with me or we go somewhere together, we sit long enough at a table, I'm going to say, hey, share your story with me. And you're going to go, I knew he was going to ask that question. And, and so you're going to share with me your spiritual journey. And I've asked literally hundreds of people that, if not thousands. And uh, a lot of people start saying, well, you know, I've always known God. And I just listened. I said, yeah, I, I, I was baptized as a child or an infant, and I went through confirmation and, you know, got a little wild in high school, college, but I've always known God. What's missing in that story? Jesus and repentance, and faith. And, or sometimes I'll ask folks, so tell me your story. And they'll say, well, you know, Pastor, I go to TBC. Great. I give money. Greater. I serve in the nursery. Wonderful. What's missing in that story? See, how do you become a true son of Abraham? 
If we drop down on the text, all the way down to verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith plus works. We may be justified by joining the church. We may justify it by getting baptized. We may be justified by what? What's it say in your Bible? Verse 24, the end of the verse. You will be justified by what? Faith. Period. Do you see the period after that? By faith. Justification, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Period. That's Paul's point. He's saying the law does not contradict the promise in any way. The Apostle Paul, I used this quote last week. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that the law illuminates sin, but it's powerless to eliminate sin. That's not its job description. It points to righteousness, but can't produce righteousness. Your imputed righteousness comes from your relationship with Christ. It shows us what godliness is, what, godly, not, what it cannot make us godly. The law can inform us of our sin, but it can't transform the sinner. Sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. So the law points out our sin. Jesus extends his grace at salvation. A number of years ago, uh, I think it's 30-plus years ago, my office was downtown. We met in the Mayburn Center. There might have been a couple of hundred of us at the most then. And one Sunday, a police officer visited TBC, and uh, I visit with him afterwards, and we talked, and he actually came to TBC until he moved away. So I meet him on a Sunday. Sometime later that week, and I'm not sure what day it was, my office was downtown, the Carpenters Union Hall. It's by Christ Episcopal Church down there. It's just an empty building now. And uh, so it's time for me to go meet a guy at lunch. I'm running a little late, so I run out, hop in my car. I'm driving, and I'm headed towards downtown. I realize I don't have my wallet. Well, that's a problem. It means I don't have my driver's license, I don't have any money, and I don't have proof of insurance. So I'm in a hurry, so I flip around and I head back towards, uh, towards where the post office is in downtown Temple. Jack in the Box is on that corner, you know what I'm talking about, right over there. I think it's 3rd and uh, Main Street or 3rd and Adams is what it is. And I'm in a hurry, and I guess the light was more red than it was yellow. <laughs> so I get to the corner, and I go to turn to go to my office, and I hear whoop, whoop, and uh, I look up, and there are lights back there. And I thought, oh gosh, I didn't even realize I'd run the light, to be honest with you. And I was in such a hurry, didn't pay attention. And uh, so I pull over, and as the door opens, I realize it's the guy who had come to church that Sunday. <laughs> and I'm saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> I mean, his lights and that little siren to pull me over, I, I, my guilt was all over me. I know I was wrong. It pointed out my sin. And now I'm thinking, here comes grace. <laughs> I mean, here comes grace. The guy was in church Sunday. He was excited about it. He loved it. And so he walks up and he says, uh, he looks at me and says, Pastor Gary, you in a hurry? I said, yeah, I really am. You know, I told him the story. I forgot my wallet back at the office and uh, I'm going to meet a guy for lunch and my money's in there. And he said, I guess your driver's license is in there. Yeah. And my proof of insurance, and he gave me a lecture on making sure I keep my glove box rather there, so it's been my glove box the last 30 plus years. The new one's not the same one. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, this is great. And then his next statement was, you of all people understand why I have to give you this ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, I don't understand at all. 
he said, but I'm going to exercise a little grace. I'm not going to include the license and proof of insurance not being here, just going through the red light. So the law pointed out of my sin, pointed it out. There was some grace extended. I, I think the fine was 30 bucks at that time. That was like a million bucks to me at that day and age. But, but he was right. I was wrong. The law pointed out my sin, and there was some grace extended. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, the law points out your sin. The grace comes from Jesus. When you recognize you're guilty, you turn to him, and you have hope. There's an interesting word that's used in verse 24 and verse 25. In the New American Standard, it says, Therefore law has become our tutor that, uh, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. And then verse 25, but that faith has come, you're no longer under a tutor. If you have the NIV, I think it says guardian there. Is that right? It says guardian in the NIV. So, so what is that word? It's an interesting word. We, we get the word pedagogy from it. Pedagogy, to be taught, to teach. Uh, this word actually, though, is an interesting word. It's a pedagos. A pedagos literally is what the word is in Greek. It, it doesn't refer to a teacher. It refers to a slave who brings kids to school and makes sure they do their schoolwork. It's an interesting word. It, it, it's, 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 it's a slave who typically in a family, in a Greek or Roman family, the moms or dad didn't take the kids to school. A slave would do that. The pedagos. And the pedagogist's job was to be with that student as usually a boy because they were the ones educated in that day and age. And usually he would take that boy to school, make sure he did his schoolwork. He was not one who tutored in the sense that we tutor people, but he just made sure the work got done. He was in a place where he could learn. And then when the boy became a man into adulthood, his job was over. It was a temporary job. It was not a permanent job. That's the law. The law had a temporary job. It was to point it to Jesus. And when, the, when we come to Christ, the tutor, the guardian, the law is gone. It's not where we live. Now we live by faith in Christ alone. It's an interesting word. I, I, I like what uh, uh, Tim Keller says. The law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God has done. In light of the prom of promise, why the law? Well, the law can't do what the promise can do. The, the, the promise can't do the things we just talked about. Can't give us righteousness. Can't do these other things. So what else does the gospel do? And that's the conclusion I read to you a little earlier. Beginning in verse 26. For you all, if you write in your Bible, circle the word all. All are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do you become a son of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Not by joining a church, not by getting baptized, not going through catechism, confirmation, not by doing good works, not by giving money, not by serving the nursery, not, not by teaching kids, not by going to small groups, not being part of Bible studies. You become a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all, there's our word, I've circled it in my Bible and drawn a line to it. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all, there you go, I've got it three times in my Bible, verse 26, 27, 28. Paul's emphasis here is on all being together in Christ. His emphasis is on our union and unity in Christ, because if you remember, there was a problem in the church. The problem was Peter would not eat with the Gentiles. 
Peter was told, hey, the, the Gentiles are not the people you need to be with because they're not following the law. And so there was division in the church. And Paul says, no, I want you to know we are one. We are united because of our faith in Christ. In fact, the true sons of Abraham, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. The true sons of Abraham are not those who are physically related to Abraham, but those who come by faith to Christ become the offspring of Abraham. Now, let me, make, let me conclude this way. I want you to think through some of these implications, the implications of the gospel, the implications of us being one. First of all, these are radical words. There are those who accuse Paul of being a feminist. Paul is the opposite. He is a revolutionist. When Paul says there's neither male nor female to a first century audience, that is an amazing statement. And every woman here say, thank you, Lord, for Paul. Thank you for Jesus who makes it equal, and thank you for Paul who teaches that doctrine. He's saying before Christ, no one's superior, no one's inferior. Yesterday, there were a thousand women, thousand plus women in this auditorium Friday night and Saturday. It was an amazing event. I came, sat in a booth for a while, gifted speakers, gifted musicians, phenomenal time as many of our sisters sat in here. It was an amazing thing to see, amazing thing to be a part of. I'm a dude thousand women here. There are about six guys, security guys, myself, and the guys in the sound booth. Who's greater, them or me? Me or them? Nobody. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. And we say, glory, hallelujah, amen. Amen? amen. And then uh, imagine if you're a woman reading that in the first century, you are a piece of property to a man. And all of a sudden, Paul says, hey, we're one. Imagine you're a slave in the first century. And you get saved, and you go to church in Galatia, and there are freemen sitting there, and there are masters sitting in there, and you're thinking, I don't belong here. I, I'm a slave. I don't belong here with free people. I don't belong here with masters. And Paul's saying, oh, yes, you do, because in Christ, we are one. And, and imagine you're a Greek, and the church is filled with Jews, or you're a Jew, and the church is filled with Greek, and you're thinking, I don't belong here. I'm not part of them. And you say, oh, he's saying, yes, you do, because you are one, because you are together. That's why you belong here. So let's talk about the gospel and its implications today. If we're all one at the foot of the cross, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, if you're Caucasian, if you're Asian, if you're an Italian Cajun, we are one at the foot of the cross. Amen? There is no room for racism in the body of Christ. None, zero at all. If you know Jesus, you can't be a racist. You can't be that way. And you can't be, you, you can't see, uh, I mean, I'm sickened by what I'm reading in the political climate today. I mean, I don't know what in the world I'm going to do. What are you going to do? These are the two best candidates in all of man. I don't want to get all political, but if these are the two best candidates in America, God help us. God help us. And I look at that and say, you know, the stuff that's come out lately, I mean, here's the reality. Thank God that before the cross, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, doesn't matter if you're one side of the tracks or the other side of the tracks, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter what your race is, we are all one before Jesus. Amen. And we look at that and we recognize if I'm going to live out the gospel and the implications of the gospel, I'm going to love you and you're going to love me regardless of where we come from. You may have a bunch of letters behind your name, degrees you earned, and we're proud of you and we're grateful for that. And I'm grateful when I go to, you know how to work on bodies or you know how to teach courses at the universities. 
And, and you may have never set foot in anything past third grade. Doesn't matter. We're one before Christ. And you may live on one side of the tracks and I live on the other side of the tracks. Doesn't matter. We're one before Jesus. And you may be a, a female and I'm a male. Doesn't matter. We're all one before Jesus. And, and, and you may be a Democrat and I'm a Republican or I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat. Doesn't matter. We're all one before Jesus. Our king is not a king from this earth. Our king is a, he's got a kingdom not of this planet. And I say praise God for that. And the implications of the gospel are we're one before the Savior. And so there's no room for ethnic divide. There's no room for racial divide. There's no room for socioeconomic divide. TBC is not as diverse as I hope it would be. We're diverse, but I hope it gets more and more diverse. I hope as we do all the stuff we're doing in our community, that we'll see people of all color, we'll see people of every background, of every stripe showing up here to worship God because our union is based upon, our, 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 our unity is based upon our union in Jesus. That's what does it. So if you want to live out the gospel, there's no room for gender bias, there's no room for socioeconomic status, there's no room for ethnic division, there's no room for racism, there's no room for not eating together in the body of Christ. We're all sinners saved by grace, equal at the foot of the cross. So you look around the room. I'm giving you permission to look around the room right now. People don't do that in church. You guys look over there, you guys look over there, wave at one another. Wave at one another. You guys, can you wave? Yeah, there you go, over here. Aren't you glad we're different? I mean, aren't you glad we're different? Aren't you glad you all don't look like me? I mean, be honest. I mean, be honest. I, I go to that same dentist. He's going to put a mask over my things. So he's going to give me a shot. Then he's going to mask me up and give me some, uh, whatever you give, nitro, I think it is. We don't have a mask big enough to fit over my nose in the dental office. Aren't you glad you don't look like me? Hey, I'm glad I don't look like you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is our union with Christ unites us to one another. Let me tell you what excited me the most about this past weekend with these thousand ladies. You know what excited me the most? Well, two things. I didn't know until after the last hour, Beth Mackey sent me a text and said, Hey, Gary, uh, get excited about this too. Five women accepted Jesus as their Savior this weekend. So I'm excited about that. I didn't know that, but I'm excited about that. What I said the last hour is the thing that excited me the most this weekend, 13 churches in our communities, Central Texas, coming together to put this on. That's a miracle. And how does that happen? How does that happen? It happens because of our union in Christ. We are not competitive. We are cooperative. We've got, we, we are not enemies, we're allies. We have a common enemy, that's Satan, and we have a common savior, that's Jesus. And because of that union, we can be united with brothers and sisters in the body and brothers and sisters in the community and in the world. And so it doesn't matter where we come from. We're one before the cross. Bev and I headed to Ukraine in several weeks. There's a pastor's conference there. And uh, we're the undercard. Do you know what undercard is? If you go to a boxing match, Tim White is our sports writer over here, an undercard are, are, are the people who fight so you can get to the main event. They're fodder. Bev and I are the undercards at the pastor's conference. The main event are Jill and Stuart Briscoe. See, they're coming to hear Jew, still and Stuart Briscoe. So it's Jill and Stuart Briscoe. They're the main event. 
We're the undercards. But here's the deal. Before the Savior, we're all equal. Now, I, I'm happy to be Stuart Briscoe's undercard, believe me. But, you know, at the foot of the cross, we're all the same. Every one of us. So I don't know who the undercard is in your mind, in your life. I don't know who it is you may look upon suspiciously. But the foot of the cross, we're united because of our union in Jesus. Let's live that way. Amen. Father, help us to live like that. Help us to live on this side of heaven like we were in heaven. It doesn't matter what color our skin is. doesn't matter what side of the tracks we live on or grew up on. doesn't matter what our background is. doesn't matter if what we have, where we studied, what matters is Jesus. Would you help us to see that in one another? And then, Father, help us to live out the gospel in our communities so that Christ will be lifted up and folks will be drawn to the real king. We'll give praise to the real king. We give honor to him. If you're here today, you've got bitterness in your heart towards someone. The scriptures are saying, resolve it, because in Christ we're all one. Get it fixed this side of heaven. If you're here today and you're trusting in some kind of work for your salvation, the law says you'll never make it there. You'll never be perfect enough. So bow your heart before Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, and accept his forgiveness and his alone. We go our way in his name. Amen. See you next week.